that you are keeping your promises and accomplishing your purposes. We pray that you would give us faith and hope to know that even in the midst of affliction, you will do as you have said, and you will accomplish your purposes. And Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment, and we pray that you would help us to be committed to measuring everything by the standard of your character. Lord, I pray that you would instill in us the ability to discern between right and wrong, not by some abstract standard, but by the standard of who you are and what you have said. And hereby, Lord, we pray that you would set our feet on the rock and enable us to be what Paul describes the church as being, the pillar and ground of the truth, as we represent you to the world. We ask that you do all this and more in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open the Bible this morning to Exodus, and we will be starting into the book of Exodus this morning. And as you turn there, I want to just briefly tell you about one of my favorite scenes in uh, C.S. Lewis's novel, The Magician's Nephew. In this scene, the lion, Aslan, is singing the world into existence. He's singing creation. He's singing Narnia into being. And the children who are witnessing this, they, they see the Lord's power and glory, and they feel the rumble of the beauty of his thunderous voice. But Uncle Andrew sees only a snarling, vicious, angry beast. And I think what C.S. Lewis is getting at is the way that people perceive the Lord differently. And the difference is not about who the Lord is, the difference is about who those people are. And it invites us to consider how do we respond to the Lord. And, and I would suggest to you that the way that you respond to the Bible is actually a good indication of how you respond to the Lord. And, and here, I want to acknowledge that we, we can all be convicted by this because I suspect that if you look at Exodus 1, 1 through 7, and you read this book that begins with the phrase, and these are the names, and then you get this genealogy, we might all be tempted to think to ourselves, what a way to start a book. <laughs> this doesn't look very exciting. And what we need to do is we need to check our cultural expectations. And we need to, to take the, the inclinations within us to respond to things from our culture, and we need to set those aside. And we need to recognize that God is speaking even here. God is speaking, and the way that we respond to the Bible really indicates the way that we're prepared to respond to the Lord himself. So with all those cultural and appetite level preferences set aside, we need to say to ourselves, what is it that Moses is trying to accomplish in a list of names like what we find in Exodus 1, 1 to 7? So if you would look with me here, and what we have here is a, a list of the names that the text says, Exodus 1, 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. 
So what, what is Moses doing here as he begins the book of Exodus this way? Well, I would suggest to you that he's showing us how this book is extending the narrative of Genesis. And so what he's going to do here as he lists these names is he's going to start with the end of Genesis. It's like he's reaching back and establishing links with the end of Genesis where we saw Jacob and his sons go down into Egypt. And then as he lists the names for us, he actually takes us back into the middle of the book of Genesis where we saw those those boys born to Jacob. And then by verse 7, Moses has taken us all the way back to the beginning of the book of Genesis, and we'll see how he does that when we get down to that verse. So first here, we have this this, uh, reiteration of the genealogy, and you know, the, the more that we, that we see here, the more that we understand how it's structured, I think the more we will appreciate what's going on. And so what Moses is going to do is start with the sons of Leah. And you may recall that Leah had six sons, and these guys are named for us in verses 2 and 3. So verse 2, we read of Reuben, and then Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and then the son of Rachel at the end of verse 3, Benjamin. We're going to get the other son of Rachel in a moment, but before we go uh, to the other son of Rachel, first we get the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, who each had two. So six of these sons were born to Leah, two were born to Rachel, and then two to uh, Zilpah and uh, Bilhah. And we read of them here in in verse 4, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. Verse 5, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. That may not seem like a really profound note, but I would suggest to you that it is a profound note because of the way that it picks up the fact that there were 70 nations in the table of nations back in Genesis chapter 10. And so what, what Moses could be suggesting here is that in Egypt, we're witnessing a new humanity. We're witnessing a, a, a kind of new Adam that in Exodus 4, 22 and 23 is going to be identified as the Son of God. And then that Son of God is going to be brought out of this, this symbolic realm of the dead, Egypt, out of that Sheol, up into the wilderness, and then eventually to the land of promise, where like a new Adam in a new garden, they're going to have a new opportunity to live in covenant with God. And that brings us now to verse 6, where we read, uh, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 5, Joseph was already in Egypt. There's the other son of Rachel. And then verse 6, Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. So the book starts out with all this death, and yet there's life. There's new life in the midst of this death. Verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The reason that Genesis 1, 27 and 28 was our call to worship this morning was so that you would see the resonance between Exodus 1, 7 and Genesis 1, 28, where the Lord blessed uh, the man and the woman and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and Fill the earth. So that's what God set Adam in the garden to do. 
He wants his image bearers to multiply and fill the world so that all over the world, those who present God's character to the world will represent him in all creation. And that's being accomplished now in verse 7, among the sons of Israel, even though they are in Egypt. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So uh, Moses has reached back to the end of Genesis and then worked his way to the middle of Genesis and then gone all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. And I think here are his two big points. Number one, God is keeping his promises. God is keeping promises that he made to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And that nation is now multiplying from 70 into the great multitude that they're becoming. And also, as we're about to see, the Lord promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And we've seen the Pharaoh at the end of Genesis be blessed because of the way that he responded positively to Joseph. And I will curse the one who dishonors you. And we're about to get into that part of the narrative as this Pharaoh is going to come under the curse because of the way that he's going to dishonor uh, the descendants of Abraham. So God is keeping his promises, number one. And number two, God is accomplishing his purposes in a list of names. God is, God is keeping his promises. God is accomplishing his purposes. And, and we want to have the kind of, of recalibrated appetite that we love things like this. We want to come to this and understand what God is doing in Exodus 1, 1 to 7 and rejoice to see the Lord at work. So there's your first big application point from this sermon. We should pray that the Lord would give us hearts that love the scriptures because we love God. We want to love the scriptures because we love the one speaking in the scriptures, because we love to see God at work in action in the scriptures. And as another, as another application of this, you know, we have at Kenwood Baptist Church a kind of list of names in our, our church directory, which you can find on your device and online, and also in the print directories that we make available. And I would encourage you, as you pray through, as I hope you do regularly, the, the print or online directory, I would encourage you to see God keeping his promises and accomplishing his purposes in these people. God is at work here among us as well. That brings us to verses 8 through 14, where we see the new king. So verse 8 of Exodus 1. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I think this indicates that this guy has not studied the history. He doesn't know about Joseph's wives stewardship. He doesn't know about the way that, that through Joseph, God blessed the world as Joseph led Egypt. He doesn't know any of this. And so verse 9, he said to his people, which by the way, that would be another uh, sort of note sounding a reminiscence of Genesis for us, reminding us of the story of Joseph. Verse 9, he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And as I was reading and rereading this passage this week, it struck me 
that there's been another character who's been described as crafty. And that character, who was more crafty than all the beasts of the field, is going to engage in a project not unlike the project that this character is going to engage in. So what I would suggest to you that I would suggest to you that Moses means for his audience to think of the serpent in Genesis 3:1, who was the craftiest of the beasts of the field. And then what that serpent does is directly call into question and then challenge the word of God to the woman about not eating from any of the trees in the garden. And the serpent knows that if they eat of that tree, it will lead to death. And we're going to see, I think, a a repetition, an installment in that kind of pattern here with this new king over Egypt who is like his father, the devil operating with a certain craftiness, a certain kind of shrewdness that is opposed to God and God's purposes. So that he says here, come let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. So the Lord, Genesis 128, be fruitful and multiply. The new king over Egypt, let's deal shrewdly with them to keep them from multiplying. What we see about Pharaoh here is that he is directly opposed to the purposes of God. If you are directly opposed to the purposes of God, you are at war with God. And if you go to war with God, you can rest assured he will not take that lightly. Psalm 2 tells us that the one who sits enthroned in the heavens laughs, and then he will speak with them in derision. And if you hear words like that, and you think, well, that sounds like a snarling lion. That's not how I think God ought to act. You need to recalibrate your expectations about what you think God ought to do so that they line up with what the Bible says he does. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Well, we know that that's exactly what's going to happen in the book of Exodus. They are going out of the land of Egypt. And this Pharaoh is setting himself in opposition, not only to this mandate from the Lord in Genesis 128, be fruitful and multiply, but also to the purpose of God of bringing the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He's saying, I'm not going to let them multiply, and I'm not going to let them out from the very beginning. That's what he's saying. So this Pharaoh is directly opposed to God's purposes. God is accomplishing his purposes. God is keeping his promises. The Pharaoh is directly opposed to God's purposes, being ignorant of God's promises. And here's here's the great encouragement of the scriptures. God cannot be stopped. Look at verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So the more Israel suffers, the more God blesses them. And the more exactly what the Pharaoh is trying to prevent happens. The more they multiply. He's trying to keep them from multiplying, and, they, and God just blesses them and makes them multiply. 
God will accomplish his purposes. Nothing can keep God. Nothing can stop God from accomplishing his purposes. Not even the most powerful man in the world. Not even the greatest empire in the world at the time. God is unstoppable. Um, When we read here, uh, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. There's language used that was also used back in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14, and in chapter 30, verses 30 and 43, to describe Jacob being afflicted by Laban. And even though Laban is trying to make it so that Jacob has the weak parts of the flock, uh, Jacob's flock is multiplying and increasing and abounding. And as we, as we go through the book of Exodus, we'll see a number of other ways in which the Exodus story harkens back to the Jacob story. This morning in uh, Sunday school, J.O. referenced Laban being the nightmare in-law. And that's true. And, and Moses is presenting the nightmare in-law of Laban as though he's a, a precursor of this wicked Pharaoh who's enslaving and oppressing the people of Israel. So the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. There's another uh, note that sounds the Jacob story. Jacob speaks of how he worked so hard out in the field. In all their work, at the end of verse 14, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So we want to, in in the same way that in verses 1 through 7, we want to recalibrate our appetites so that we love the Word of God because we love God, so also from verses 8 through 14, we want to start the process of recalibrating our expectations. And, And what I mean here is we all have this tendency to say, well, we can measure how things are going by the way things look or feel to us, and, and we, need to, we need to set aside all those worldly standards of measurement. We need to measure how things are going by our confidence in God's ability to do what he said he would do. God is infallibly, ineluctably, unstoppably going to do what he said he would do. We may suffer. It may be hard on us. It may be difficult for us. But God's purposes cannot be stopped. And that brings us in verses 15 to 22 to this section that deals... I I, I think that what we have here is equivalent to the serpent saying to the woman in the garden, has God really said? Did God really say? So in in verse, verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a a daughter, she shall live. So the Egyptians probably planned to incorporate these daughters into their own empire, use them for their own purposes, but they've given a, the Pharaoh now has given a direct order to the midwives to act contrary to God's purposes. Again, God's purpose, Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. Pharaoh's purpose, we want to keep them from multiplying. And so he now says to these Hebrew midwives, when you see that it's a male child, 
put the male child to death. And this is just manifestly an occasion where believing people must say, I obey God, not man. God's purpose is to cause the Hebrews to be fruitful and multiply. If your purpose, Pharaoh, stands contrary to that, I align myself with God's purpose, not with yours. So this is an order from the government, right? The Bible elsewhere says things like, submit to the governing authorities. This is an order from the government that it would be wickedly sinful to obey because you would be agreeing with the seed of the serpent in the attack on God. That's what you'd be doing. You'd be joining the seed of the serpent's efforts to engage in warfare against the Lord and his people. And whenever you're called to do that, you must refuse to obey. You must obey God, not man. In fact, this needs to be one of those things where it is not even a choice. This is not even something we think about. If the government calls us to do something that is in direct contradiction to what God commands us to do, we don't even contemplate that. We obey God, not man. This is not an ethical dilemma. Not for the people of God. Verse 17. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So if, if we ask ourselves, how is it that we get to the place where we're prepared to defy something like the king of Egypt? How do we get to the place where we're prepared to receive whatever the greatest empire in the world might do to us if we defy their order? It's right there at the beginning of verse 17. The midwives feared God. And, and this is just reflecting what you see in the New Testament when Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body. You need to fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We must come to the place where we know that what the Pharaoh can do to us is nothing in comparison with what God can do to us. And we must come to the place where we feel the majesty of the Pharaoh is nothing compared to the majesty of God. Only by experiencing the living God. Only by sinking ourselves into the scriptures and having the scriptures form our intellectual apparatus with which we analyze and think about the world, with which we process commands like this that come to us from the Pharaoh, only if the scriptures have shaped and formed and built us will we be people who have experienced God so that the fear of God holds us in a moment like this. The midwives feared God. You would, you would think, I think we might think, surely the midwives would be terrified of the Pharaoh. No, no, the midwives feared God. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. And then that last phrase of verse 17 is, it comes into English a little bit weakly. It, it, it reads like something passive. And I think the reason it reads passively is because of the way that we think about childbirth. We think of a midwife allowing the child to be, to be born into the world and to go on living. But if you look at this in, in, the, in the original Hebrew, it's, it's an active verb, 
And it's a verb that, that can be translated something like the midwives caused the, the boys to live. They caused life for the boys. They gave them life. It's an active verb, which I think points in the direction of the midwives essentially saying to Pharaoh, thank you very much, Mr. Pharaoh. We're going to go right on doing our business. We're going to go right on doing what we do. We're going to go right on making it so that these children come into the, li- come into the world healthy and alive. Direct defiance of a wicked, sinful, war-on-God level order. Naturally, Pharaoh doesn't appreciate this very much. Verse 18, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And again, that let the male children live caused life for the male children. Why have you done this? Now, I think that sometimes people are tempted to look at a passage like this, and they're tempted to come up with explanations, and and I've done this myself, come up with explanations that would allow us to kind of get the midwives off the hook, allow us to envision a scenario where the midwives are able to give themselves plausible deniability. Like I've suggested to uh, people, well, maybe, you know, the midwives... Um, maybe what they did was they put the word out to the Hebrew women and they said, look, if, if you're about to have the baby, don't call me. Here's what you do. That way I won't be on the scene and you'll have the baby and I won't have to kill any of the babies and then I can go into Pharaoh and I can make up this excuse about how, um, well, the, the Hebrew women are vigorous and they have the, the baby before the midwife gets to them. Listen, the Pharaoh is smart enough to see through those things. The Pharaoh knows, and, and I think that active verb indicates that they actually gave life to those children. So the Pharaoh knows, I've given you an order. Your responsibility is to carry out the order. I want those boys dead, and you have not done it. The Pharaoh knows that. Any any shifting away from that is defiance and disobedience, which they've done. And I don't think we should try to soften it. Verse 19. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, number one, I don't think this is true. (laughs) I just don't think it's true. I, I don't think, I mean, maybe. There's an outside possibility, I guess, that if we were to study uh, you know, do a, do a scientific analysis of uh, the birthing process for Hebrew women as opposed to all other uh, women, we might, I, I just doubt it. I don't, I, don't, I don't expect that we would find that a particular ethnicity of women who descend from Abraham physically are going to be more vigorous and give birth before the midwife gets to them, unlike, you know, the Egyptian women. I just don't think that's true. And that leads me to suggest to you that the midwives are, are recognizing this Pharaoh, in a sense, is not my neighbor. This Pharaoh is the seed of the serpent. This Pharaoh is at war with God and God's purposes, and therefore, I think the midwives conclude, we don't owe the truth to this Pharaoh. To speak the truth to this Pharaoh would, would put our lives in jeopardy. To carry out the orders of this Pharaoh would be to murder the innocent male children that God wants brought into the world. And that raises the question, if, if we assume, for the sake of argument, that 
it's not the case that Hebrew women give birth in ways that are separate from all other women in the, in the world, which I just don't think that's probably the case. If we assume for the sake of argument that that's the case, then we can ask the question, well, then did the midwives tell a lie? I think that there are people who would affirm that, and they would say, yes, the midwives told a lie. In fact, uh, this week I read an, an argument written by a well-known theologian. I'll just tell you, it's Wayne Grudem. You can look it up. You can look Wayne Grudem up, and you can Google, uh, you know, is it ever right to lie or something like that, and it'll take you right to this document. And what Grudem argues is, is that it is always wrong to verbally affirm things you know to be false. But he wants to distinguish, distinguish between verbally affirming things that you know to be false and doing actions that would mislead people intentionally. So it's okay for Grudem to do an action that would deceive your enemy, but it would be wrong, according to Grudem, to verbally affirm things that you know to be false to deceive your enemy. And I just think that's a distinction without a difference. I agree with John Frame, who looks at that and says, this is not a cogent distinction. In other words, if you're okay deceiving your enemy by your actions, and you just want to keep your mouth shut and be silent, but somehow deceive the enemy by what you do, but you think it's not okay to say words that would deceive the enemy, I, you're still deceiving the enemy. You, I, I don't think that's a helpful distinction. So, and then, and then Grudem also argues that to deceive the enemy would be at variance with the character of God, which... Well, number one, you're okay with deceiving the enemy by actions, but not, well, how, you know, is that not in, at variance with the character of God? Or perhaps is there some other explanation for these things? And I want to suggest to you that there's another better explanation, better than coming up with an abstract, rootless definition of what a lie is, like verbally affirming things that you know to be false, I would suggest that it's better to root our concept of truth where the Bible roots it. And the Lord says of himself, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and truth. So we want to root our understanding of truth in God himself, in his character. And then I would suggest to you that telling the truth and speaking the truth means being faithful to God. So in this case, the Pharaoh is not their neighbor, and so I don't think that they have transgressed the commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I think that commandment points in the direction of not harming your neighbor, someone who's at peace with you. This is dealing with an enemy who's at war with your God, at war on the male children of your people, and, and in that case, I think if you deceive that enemy, you're doing the same thing that God himself tells the people of Israel to do in Joshua 8, when he instructs Joshua to set an ambush against the city of Ai. So God himself instructs Joshua to deceive the inhabitants of Ai by setting an ambush, and then they crush them from behind. So here again, I think that God's own character is modeling this kind of thing for the people of Israel. You can even see it, I would suggest, in Exodus 5.3, when um, the Lord commissions Moses and Aaron to go into Pharaoh and say, um, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness. This bit about the three days' journey, 
that, that, that they communicate to Pharaoh, this is the Lord's instruction about what they're to say to Pharaoh. And the Lord's intention is to bring them out, not for just three days, not for just a three-day distance, but he intends to bring them out forever. They're, they're going out of Egypt a lot longer than a three-day's journey, and they're staying out of Egypt. So the Lord himself, I would suggest to you, models deceiving an enemy. So, again, I would, I would, I would contend that truth-telling is established by God's character. Telling the truth first requires speaking in accordance with God's character and God's purposes. Uh, there's also the occasion in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when the Lord commissions Samuel to go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse king. And Samuel says, if Saul learns of what I'm doing, he will kill me. And the Lord's response to Samuel is, take a sacrifice and go hold a sacrifice and invite the sons of Jesse to the sacrifice. So again, the Lord initiates a program whereby Samuel is going to deceive Saul about what he's doing. You could also think of Rahab, who is commended in the New Testament for receiving the spies, and in that account in Joshua 2, she hides the spies. She affirms things that she knows to be false about where those spies are and deceives the, the Jericho, you know, con detachment of men sent to, to seize those spies, and then she sends the spies out another way, and that is affirmed in Hebrews 11.31 and James 2.25 as righteous action that she did by faith, so that her faith in God, by her faith in God, her actions showed her, that showed that she was justified. And there, um, uh, I think that what we want to affirm and what we want to recognize is that for Rahab, to be faithful to Jericho and the gods of Jericho would be for Rahab to be unfaithful to the Lord and the people of the Lord. And for Rahab to be faithful to the Lord and the people of the Lord required her to be unfaithful to Jericho and Jericho's gods. And her allegiance is clear in that episode, as is that of the midwives here. Just a couple other thoughts here before I move on from this. Uh, you may have noticed earlier in the service, that, that statement that Gabe read in Psalm 18, 26. With the pure, you show yourself pure. But with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. I think that David there is recognizing that sometimes the Lord manifests himself like Aslan, and to the pure, he sounds like he's singing this glorious song of creation. But to the crooked, it's, it looks like he's a snarling, vicious lion, an untamed beast that, that is not to be approached, only to be fred, fled from. Um, I would also suggest that um, that we should recognize that what the midwives are doing here is they are protecting innocent life and they are acting for God's purposes and kingdom. And we look at Rahab. She's protecting innocent life, and she's advancing God's purposes and kingdom. And so if someone says, well, this view that you've just articulated would lead to situational ethics and moral relativism, my response is no. No. We are constrained by the character of God. We are constrained by the purposes and the promises of God. And God's character and purposes also teach us that whatever is not from faith 
is sin. So you may remember when we were in Genesis 12, I said regarding Abraham's lie about his, his wife, Sarah, I said God doesn't need man's lies to accomplish his purposes. I think that Abraham did lie about Sarah. And here's how I would distinguish between this episode and that episode. Abraham, it seems, is not thinking about the purposes of God. I'll make you a great nation. Oh, here, you can take my wife. Uh, she's my sister. Just don't kill me. Well, Sarah's necessary for the promise to be realized. Abraham is not thinking about the promise and God's purpose. He's thinking about his own skin that he's trying to save. And he's not acting in faith. So I, and also, I would also add that in Genesis 12, there are, there are words in the text that line up with statements in Genesis 3 showing us that Moses means us to read Genesis 12 as a kind of new iteration of sinful behavior, whereas here it's the serpent who's, as it were, tempting these Hebrew midwives to bring about death in the same way that the serpent tempted Eve to bring about death. And whereas Eve went along with the serpent's temptation, the midwives say, as Eve should have, we fear God. We're going to obey God. So I think that what these midwives do here is commendable. They protect innocent life. They act for God's purposes. They seek to advance God's kingdom. If you say to me, well, where's the line? Where's the line about how we know whether we've sinned like Abraham or we're acting in faith like the midwives. Number one, be faithful to God. Be faithful to God. And have the discernment to recognize when people are at war with God. We, we have to be able to recognize the seed of the serpent and, and we have to be faithful to the Lord and not join the seed of the serpent in their war against God. And, and, and that will en enable us to know when we're dealing with a situation where we have to obey God not man. Number two, seek first his kingdom. And number three, seek to do good to all. And really, I don't think this is hard. This is not hard. If, if you're trying to act in accordance with the character of God, trying to be faithful to God, trying to preserve innocent life, recognizing who's at war with God, I, I, I don't think it'll be difficult for you to recognize when you're in a situation where you don't owe to somebody the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You, you notice in that passage from John 7, um, Jesus' brothers are like going up to Jerusalem. And at that point, they're not believing. Jesus doesn't tell them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He's going to Jerusalem. And he's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to teach. But he's not telling his brothers that. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast. And then there he goes. And, and I would suggest that Jesus is modeling for us this kind of wisdom and discernment. It's, it's like he says in... Matthew chapter 10, when he says in Matthew 10, 16, I want you to be shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. That's really what, what I think the midwives are modeling for us here. Verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. You notice that God is keeping his promises accomplishing his purposes in spite of affliction and now for and through those who fear him. God is keeping his promises, accomplishing his purposes through these midwives who fear him. And then he blesses them. Uh, verse 21, because the midwives feared God, 
He gave them families. Well, Pharaoh, he's at war with God and God's purposes. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. God will keep his promise. God will accomplish his purpose. God will do this in spite of the ways that his people are afflicted. God will do this for and through those who fear him. We want to be those described in Psalm 25, verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And to them he makes known his covenant. We want to be those in Psalm 34, verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And we want to be those in Psalm 34, 5. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never put to shame. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. And we are so thankful that you've revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts that love your word, hearts that respond to the scriptures as we want to respond to you yourself. Lord, we pray that you would make us like what the author of Hebrews describes when he speaks of those who, by constant practice, have their senses trained to distinguish between good and evil. Lord, we ask that you would give us discernment that we would know who the seed of the serpent are and who the seed of the woman are. And Lord, we pray that you would cause our hearts to resonate with that word of Psalm 119 when it says, I am, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your testimonies. Lord, make us good neighbors to your people and give us that shrewdness and wisdom that Jesus spoke of when we deal with with those who are against you, those who are against your purposes. Lord, we love you and we want to honor you. We pray that you would strengthen us and make us those who walk with you and know you and be glorified in us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.